Heavenly Father, you, not, you are not a man that you should lie. You are not a son of man that you should change your mind when you speak, you act, when you promise, you fulfill. I ask a simple prayer this morning, Father, that you would be gracious with all those who have gathered here to hear this word from Acts 27 and to believe that you are the faithful God. Again and again we see throughout Scripture your identity as the promise keeper. You make promises to your people and you keep those promises. Father, I, I pray that we would be rightly encouraged by this character and nature of yours, that we would not be overwhelmed or discouraged by the lack of promises we make and do not keep or those that are not kept that are made to us. Instead, Father, I pray that we would put all of our hope and all of our trust in you. I praise you, Lord, for gathering every soul here in this room, for all those you've gathered here in the Bay Area. I lift up Orchard Community to you this morning in Creekside. I pray, Lord, that you would bless their gathering this morning, that they would see you as the promise-keeping God. I pray as well for West Hills and for Redeemer Church, for our brothers and sisters there. Lord, we lift up all the true churches here in the South Bay. And as we prayed earlier this morning, we ask that you would use this Sunday to cultivate in the hearts and minds a deep revival that we would be a people filled with your spirit, living holy lives and proclaiming the gospel that we might see the many here that are lost, many of whom have never heard the gospel come to a saving grace. Use us to that end for your glory, I pray, Father. Use this sermon and this time to encourage us to that end. We know that you are the great promise keeper and everyone that you have redeemed in Christ, you promised to save. Let us bring that good news to the lost, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> I too am suffering from some miserable throat thing, so forgive me if I sound more like a frog than a human being. Um, I pray that it does not impede the word being proclaimed. God is gracious. He will, he will help me through this. Um, the title of the sermon should give you an idea of what I'm going to be drawing from Acts 27 today. And the understanding that God is the perfect promise keeper. Every promise that he makes, he fulfills. He cannot not fulfill his promises because of who he is. Um, <clears throat> I imagine promises are very important to you. Certainly, certain promises are more important than others, those promises made in marriage or those promises made by an employer or a good friend. Promises you make and promises that are made to you, we do, even as sinners, even as promise breakers, we take them very seriously. And as a Christian, they should be extremely important to you, not only to honor those that we make promises to, those made in the image of God, and it, is our, it should be a blessing for us to honor those promises, but by keeping our promises, we get an opportunity to reveal to the world our promise-keeping God. When we make a promise and we keep a promise, we are pointing to God, our Creator. In Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, it says, When a man makes a vow or a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. And yet, if we're going to be transparent for a moment, we can recall promises that we've made that we have failed to complete. 
some promises that we made that we never intended to fulfill. In fact, in our cultural moment, there's actually a, a movement that encourages those who make promises to break them if it's best for you, if it's best for you individually, which we, of course, we know is not true biblically. And when it comes to politics and advertising, I think we've all come to expect promises being made that will not be fulfilled. And we're not fools to hear these and think, wow, they're lying to us. In a, a recent Super Bowl, for example, just a few of the empty promises made by our American advertisers, driving a Hyundai will make you a better parent, <clears throat> eating a Butterfingers will give you unparalleled confidence, wearing Axe body spray, which I have no idea what it is, will help you discover, quote, your most powerful uniqueness, wearing a Fitbit will make you stronger and of what you would expect during a Super Bowl is watching football can improve your intimacy with your spouse. <clears throat> the God of the Bible is not like man. He keeps his promises even in the most extreme of circumstances. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The answer is, of course not. Unlike sinful man, when God makes a promise, he keeps it. So when God promises to save sinners like us, out of his love for fallen man, out of his desire to bring himself glory, he keeps it. And from the passage today, I would like for us to see how God brings himself glory as the perfect promise keeper. All of us have doubted God. Maybe some of you have doubted God this very morning and the promises he has made to you. By his grace, he will change that fault in you. I'd like us to see how faithful God is to his people and do two things this morning. One, strengthen you, give you courage to cause you to trust in him more. Amen? Three things I'd like to show you. Number one, how God thwarts the faithless, how he gives strength to the faithful, and how he saves the shipwrecked. We're going to see in this passage how God, in order to bring himself glory, he thwarts the will and the work of the faithless. He strengthens the faithful and he saves the shipwreck. Here's your theme for the day. God is faithful. Be encouraged. Trust in the Lord. God is faithful. Be encouraged. Trust in the Lord. Point number one, thwarting the faithless. So Paul and Luke and Aristarchus and 273 other men are on board. 14 days at sea. The wind had blown them now. 475 miles west of the island of Cotta, and they find themselves only 60 miles or so off the shore of Malta. And Malta is a little tiny island just south of Sicily. <clears throat> now, if you remember, the angel of the Lord had promised that all 276 souls on board would live through Paul because of Paul's faithfulness to God and because Paul had been decreed by God to go to Rome. All 275 other shipmates were going to live too. Look at verse 27. When the 14th day had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were hearing land. You say, well, how did they suspect it? They didn't, have, they didn't have radar on the ship. They were likely, most commentators believe, they actually heard the waves breaking upon the rocks on the northwestern side of Malta. In fact, these, these waves are so big and so loud that even today you can hear them from miles away. So it's likely they heard this sound. Verse 28, <clears throat> so they took a sounding and they found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 
fathoms. They were, they were trying to determine how deep the water was. The first reading was 120 feet. Next reading was 90 feet. And they knew they were drawing near to shore. Verse 29. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So the captain ordered four of their large anchors to be dropped in the back of the boat, not only to stop them from floating towards these rocks, which they were actually doing, but in order to prepare them for the morning so the bow would be free in order to point in the direction they would go, which would, was hopefully a sandy beach, and they'd make a run for the shore. So not sure if the anchors would hold or the, or the ship would stay in one piece, we find all those on board except for Luke, and Paul and Aristarchus praying to their pagan gods for help. They were asking for one more night at sea to live. Some of the sailors, though, they did not trust their pagan gods, and they did not trust Paul and Paul's gods, and they decided they were going to get off the boat themselves. Look at verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat, that's their lifeboat, into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. So one of the strategies that they would actually do is they would take anchors from the bow and they would actually locate them out in the front of the boat depending upon how they wanted the, the, the ship to be oriented for, the, for setting sail again. But this was an unorthodox move in light of their attempt to get to the beach. They were going to try to run the beach, run the ship ashore in order for them all to get off. So they put the boat in under the guise, but what they were going to do is get in the lifeboat and they were going to leave everybody else behind. They were escaping. Now Paul was, <clears throat> Paul was obviously no stranger to being at sea. He had already been shipwrecked three times and it's likely he saw them doing this thinking, well, this is not right. They should not be doing that. And so verse 31, Paul said to the centurion, that's Julius, and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Do you notice how he appeals to their own lives? He said, forget about everybody else. If they get off this boat, Julius, you and your soldiers, you're going to die. And he told them that because if the sailors got off the boat, and most likely the, those who were in, involved in this conspiracy to leave Including, included the sailmaster and the captain. They couldn't have lowered the lifeboat without orders coming from the captain and the sailmaster. So they likely were involved in this escape plan as well. If they left the boat, there'd be no way to get the boat to the shore. Verse 32. So the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat. That was their lifeboat. And they let it go. That prevented all the sailors from getting off. Now, that might have been done in haste. I imagine when that boat was floating away, they thought, hmm, we could have used that to get off this ship when we got closer to shore. But that was the case. God would deal with it and save them anyway. Now, most of you know throughout the redemptive plan of our Lord, he has constantly thwarted the will and the work of the faithless who have tried to stop or prevent his plan of salvation. Certainly these sailors were trying to get off the boat. That would have thwarted his plan of salvation. But his promise was what? 276 souls would be saved. So they were not allowed to leave. Certainly because Paul saw it, Julius ordered the ropes to be cut, and they were, but this was part of God's providential plan. It's always been part of his providential plan to thwart the faithless who work against salvation of God's people. The faithless Egyptians were destroyed, if you remember, in the Red Sea, fulfilling God's promise to set the Israelites free. Before Israel took the promised land, we know that God promised to go before them and subdue all the faithless inhabitants of that land. And so he did, Joshua chapter 21. Not one of all the enemies had withstood them, 
For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word, listen to this, not one word of all the good promises that God, that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass by them coming into the promised land. God fulfilled his promise to King David by keeping him alive when Saul wanted him dead. God fulfilled his promise when he overcame the Babylonians and the Assyrians, bringing God's people back to the promised land through Ezra and Nehemiah. This constant theme of God thwarting the will and the work and the effort of the faithless to prevent God's plan and God's salvation of his people. He limits them or he stops them. Now, the very fact that we're gathered here this morning and that millions of your brothers and sisters around the world are gathered in places like this, worshiping God, still believing, still preaching the gospel, still testifying to the goodness and the glory of Jesus Christ proves inconclusively that God is actively thwarting the will of the faithless. All those who do not want us honoring Christ, all those in this area right now, how many in the area would love for us not to be here, love to shut this church down, love to close this Bible and stop your faith? We could probably say tens of thousands. But even this very hour, God is working to fulfill Jesus' promise that he made to Peter in Matthew 16. He said to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and what? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God is faithful to keep his promise by thwarting the efforts of the faithless. So when the faithless in our cultural moment, they seem to be thriving, don't they? And when a daily dose of the evening news causes you to go into great despair and you think all is lost, my beloved, listen, do not be fooled. God is not mocked. Psalm 37, verse 28, for the Lord loves justice and he does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. God works to preserve his people by keeping the acts of the faithless in check. And he expects us to participate in that great work. God does this work and he expects us to participate. He expects us to step up, my beloved, listen closely, to step up and speak out when we see the faithless, those who do not know Christ, working against our faith or the faith of brothers and sisters. Paul saw what they were doing and he said to Julius, they have to stay or we're going to die. So Paul participated in stopping the work, the thwarting the work of the faithless on that boat. So when your faithless friends want you to engage, listen younger ones, in sinless behavior, and you know it's sinful behavior, you must speak out and you must not participate. When your unbelieving spouse wants you to draw away from the faith, and they actually are pulling you away because they do not believe, you must say no and continue to press on in Christ. When your family wants you to stop spending so much time with the church engaged in ministry, you must not capitulate. When your employer wants your first love, oh, <clears throat> do we need to hear this in this cultural moment, in this valley with the tech industry. When your employer wants your first love and your greatest allegiance to be work and tell you to forsake your marriage and your children and your ministry and your church, as members of God's people, we are to pray for and participate and work against that. We are to help in this movement of light against the darkness. So first we see, I pray, that God keeps his promises and he brings himself glory by thwarting 
the work and the will of the faithless. He does that. He's done that throughout history. He's doing it in your life right now. There are people in your life that would love to draw you away from Christ, and God is actively working to keep them from doing that because he must pers- you must persevere to the end, and he knows that. But he not only thwarts the will of the faithless, God brings himself glory by strengthening the faithful. Point number two. Look at verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Verse 34, Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. The scene is extraordinary. And if, we, if they were able to do a, a really good movie, I know there have been some B and C rated movies on this, but a really good movie on this, it's pitch dark. It may be a lantern or two, but the storm is raging. It's still raining. The wind is blowing. They can hear the rocks, and those rocks to them mean death. Those rocks of Malta are, are there to devour them. And so again, in the wee hours of the night, what does Paul do? He stands up. He's such a godly, righteous man. He stands up to give this crew who was despairing for their lives hope. And he does that by reminding them. He says, listen, an angel told me that you're going to live He reminded them of God's promise to save them from this storm. And then he encourages them to eat. And he he doesn't do that just because they're weak. He does it because they have work to do. For 14 days, the understanding of the text, according to Luke, for 14 days they had not eaten, not because there was no food, but they were full of anxiety, too busy, too stressed out to prepare the food or eat it. And so Paul says, now is the time. Put your anxiety aside. Eat and eat well because there was work to do. First, they had to prepare the ship to run it ashore. Secondly, they had to get the ship to shore. And then if they didn't make it all the way, as we see happening here, they got to jump in the water and swim to shore. Well, you're not going to do that if you've been fasting for 14 days straight, right? So Paul wants them ready to do the work. And he enables them, he encourages them to eat by saying, listen, not a single hair on your beautiful heads is going to be harmed. You're going to be saved through and through. And then he does something that's really beautiful in their midst. Look at verse 35. And when he had said these things, these words of encouragement, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and he began to eat. Now you hear that and you think, oh, communion, communion on the high seas. I don't think so, but it's a nice thought, isn't it? I don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think it's the Lord's Supper. I mean, these are not Christians, and only Christians participate in the Lord's Supper. But it's beautiful nonetheless, because what what Paul is doing here, and the way Luke retells the story, is he is drawing these hopeless sailors into the sacrifice that Christ made for them. He's thanking God for who God is as the real, tangible, grace-giving, one true, living God. Remember, these sailors have been praying all night to their pagan gods. Pagan gods are not gods. They're not real. They're praying to no one. They're just making sounds with their mouths. And so Paul is introducing them here to the God he belonged to, remember last week, the God that he worshiped, the one true living God, the creator, his father, his friend, the king, the one sovereign, over the winds and the waves and the sea and their very lives. And so he's introducing them to this great God of his. This God who promised to not only save Paul's life, but all those on board. And it was going to be a miracle. In other words, through this Thanksgiving meal, listen closely, 
I think that Paul was being very strategic as an evangelist. He was preparing the hearts of his hearers to do what? To give thanks to God after they were saved. Right? Because they're going to be saved, and he wants to prepare their hearts that in their saved state, they want to look back and say, how did that happen? They would point to God, Paul's God, the true God. You see, in a matter of hours, all 276 souls on board, they'd be on dry land, safe and sound, after 14 long days at sea, fearing death every hour, and they'd be on dry land not because of their pagan gods and not because of the courage of their captain who most likely tried to jump ship and not because of the courage of the crew or the calming of the storm. They would stand on the shores of Malta unharmed because Paul's God, the only God, had promised what? He said, you will live and they lived. So simple and so powerful. So as God strengthened Paul's faith, Paul sought to strengthen theirs by giving thanks and praise to God. He was being an evangelist. He was being an evangelist in preparing their hearts to see the miracle that was about to transpire. So I ask you, my beloved, do you in your daily walk, do you strengthen others by your constant perpetual appeal to God's goodness and grace in your life? Do they hear you Thanking God and praising God and giving thanks to God for the good things and the bad things in your life. Are you verbal about that? Or are you quiet? My friends, this is no small matter. Every single person gives credit to someone or something for the blessings we enjoy or the hardships we endure. Everybody does, saved and unsaved. It's either a false god, chance, our upbringing, destiny, karma, luck, In the West, we have this marvelous cultural condition where we like to give ourselves credit for all the good things and we blame other people for all the bad things. I mean, that's the disposition of our cultural moment. What a testimony. If with all your unsafe family, friends, and coworkers and neighbors, what if they heard you constantly with your lips, with your words, praising God and thanking God for the blessings that you receive? Here, Paul's doing that with a piece of bread he's about to eat. And how amazing if those in your mission field who do not know Christ heard you praising God and thanking God in the midst of the trials and the suffering. And you would say, I know that God is using this to draw me to him. I know that God is doing this to to change my character, to make me more like Christ. I know this suffering is good. How strange that would sound, would it not? To a world that does not understand the gospel and how it works. Paul's eating and giving thanks to God in the midst of the storm, was to prepare their hearts to see Christ, to see the one true living God. And it was an encouragement. Look at verse 36. They were, they were rightly encouraged. Verse 36, then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. 14 days, no food, anxiety, and now they eat. Verse 37, we were in all 276 persons in the ship, And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So encouraged by Paul, they eat after 14 days, and they now have enough strength to begin to prepare the ship to run ashore. And they start by lightening the load. They're lightening the load so the boat is is lighter, and the the light of the boat, you can drift into more shallow water, right? They're trying to to increase the buoyancy of it. Now bringing this wheat up from below deck in the midst of a storm, was no small task. 
I mean, it's amazing the thought they were going to bring all that weed up and they were going to throw it overboard to lighten the load. But they had not only been rejuvenated by the meal they had, I would argue they were rejuvenated by the hope that Paul had given them, that you're going to live. So they ate and they worked really hard in the midst of this storm in order to see God's promise fulfilled, that they would live. And the hope that Paul had, it was contagious. Hope is always contagious, my beloved. You've been around people that have been in despair. When you come to them hopeful in Christ and you bring a word from God, do you not see them encouraged? Of course you do. Hope is wonderfully contagious. My beloved, it ought to be the same for us in our service to the Lord that we find strength and encouragement in the Lord to continue. And then in the midst of that encouragement and in that trust, we do what? We work hard for God. Even in the midst of a storm. When the ship's being destroyed and you think all hope is lost, you continue pressing on, you continue serving Christ because you're encouraged in him. You know, one of the reasons we take communion, even though I don't think this was a communion passage, we take it every single Sunday. And one of the reasons we do that is to encourage you to continue on in Christ by you remembering the broken body that represents what he did on the cross and by you taking the wine that represents his spilled blood you are to remember what christ endured on the cross for sinners like us you are to consider the punishment that he took to get us safely in one piece off the the shipwreck of our lives and onto the eternal shores with god and in that condition knowing that jesus completed the work for us on that cross in his condition he paid for our sins in full. We're to be encouraged by that, my beloved. I know you hear it week after week, and you should. That's the gospel. You want to hear that, but don't, don't let it become bland to you. Have the, the crucifixion and the death of Christ and what that means to you rightly encourage you to press on in the work in the hard times. Have it become something so beautiful to you, you meditate on it day and night so that regardless of how difficult the work might be, bringing all that grain up from below ship, or the conditions in your life, you will press on because of Christ. When you rightly remember Jesus and what he has done for you, you'll want to lighten the load of others, will you not? It won't just be about you. You'll look around and you'll see people who are heavy laden, and you'll want to come alongside them, and you'll want to lighten their load so they can know Christ and enjoy Christ too. We'll want to encourage others with the hope that we have in God, in the good times and the bad. You'll want to help people see that happiness is not contingent upon circumstances, that there is a way in Christ to go through really difficult times and still be filled with joy. That's something the world does not know. They do not have it because that's only had in Christ. We can help give them strength as we draw them to the one true living God and get them to stop praying to their pagan gods. So we've seen, I pray, the promise keeper God, he does two things. He thwarts the, the work and the will of the faithless. He strengthens and encourages the faithful. I'm going to give you one more. He brings himself glory by saving the shipwrecked. Now, everything up to this point would be moot if we cannot be saved, right? Whether God's going to thwart the will of the faithless or he's going to encourage the faithful, that doesn't matter if this promise-keeping God does not keep his promise because in the end, that's all that matters. Do you live? Do you escape the grave? Do you spend eternity with Christ? We must know that answer. Point number three, saving the shipwreck. Look at verse 39. <clears throat> now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay, a bay with a beach 
on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So daylight comes. Their pagan gods answered their prayers, right? No, of course not. The captain and the crew, they look out and they see the island of Malta, but they don't recognize it. And it might be because of the storm. They, they probably had difficulty seeing the shoreline and what it looked like. But they do notice there was a beach, a sandy beach, with no rocks directly in front of them. And so this, is, this would have been on the northwest side of the island of Malta. And they decide they're going to run the ship ashore which is an extreme. They've, they've lightened the load. They've, they've uh, got rid of all the, the wheat, and, and they're going to go for it here. They're going to get off this scene-torn ship out of the storm onto dry land. I imagine every sailor, that's all they were thinking about. Get to the land. Get out of the water. Verse 40. So they cast off the anchors and, and left them in the sea. At the same time, they loosened the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made, they made for the beach. They made for the beach. <clears throat> they cut the anchor so they can go forward. They untie the rudder. They, it, was, it was in the midst of a storm. They would actually secure the rudder so the rudder didn't break because without a rudder, you can't steer the ship. So they, they loosen the rudder so they can actually make a direction for the beach. And they hoist the foresail, which was the smaller sail at the bow of the boat, which was used not only for propulsion but for guidance. And so they make their way, they're making their run, verse 41, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. So they're not there yet. They don't make it. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by surf. So here we are. At the, it has to climax, right? It has to be dramatic, because there's going to be a dramatic rescue by God. Their efforts came up short, and they strike an underground strip of, of it wasn't actually a reef, um, they think they know the exact location. It's quite incredible. Paul's, Luke's description of this is so detailed that most archaeologists and geologists think they know where the boat got stuck, <clears throat> where they cut the anchors, and where they actually jumped in the water and swam to shore. So they don't make it. They're, they need to go an extra mile here. Look at verse 42. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. Well, that's not good. That's going to thwart the purpose of God, verse 43. But the centurion, that's Julius, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. That's fascinating. Their will, their desire was to follow orders because if a, one of their prisoners escaped, they'd be liable for that and possibly be killed themselves. So it was standard operating procedure to kill your prisoner so they don't escape, right? And so Julius steps up, and we're told here, Luke tells us, in order to save Paul, Julius says, don't kill anybody. We're going to save the, all the prisoners that we had. Now, of all the people that were going to be held responsible, it would have been Julius. So if one prisoner escaped, one prisoner, then he would have been culpable for it because he was a centurion. He was in charge. He was the commanding officer. And so the question I had is, why, why didn't he let them kill the other prisoners and just save Paul? Could have said that. Kill the rest. Paul's mine. I will take care of Paul. And, and I thought about this, and I prayed about this, and I, I really think that the, uh, I think Julius had been caught up in the promise of God. I think that he wanted to see this thing play out. God made a promise. Paul declared it was from the mouth of an angel that all 276 on board were going to make it. Certainly, if his men killed the prisoners, that, that promise could not be true. And I, I, so I think that Julius was moved by more than just Paul's courage. I think he had been moved by Paul's God, who promised not a single person on board would perish 
And so now with the beach in grasp, Julius, a centurion soldier, participates in the promise of God. Did you notice that? Look at the latter part of verse 43. Julius ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, verse 44, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. So, So the storm for the first time now, is in their favor. It's blowing everything to the beach. And so Julius says to the swimmers, get in and start swimming. And that makes sense. If you have people around you, it might impede your progress. They could get to the shore and they could help others get to the shore as well. And actually, some of the translations, it's a, it's a little hard in the Greek. It actually might mean that those who couldn't swim were jumped on the back of those who could swim. I don't know about you. I've, I've, I've taken lessons on how to save people. I don't know how well you do that in a storm. But maybe, who knows, um, then those who could not swim, he says, get a flotation device. They didn't reach under their seat in the aircraft and put on that nice little device. He said, get a, a piece of wood, get a plank, get something, and float on it. And so the scene's extraordinary. For 14 days, they're, they're at sea, they're being tossed around, and now you have 276 men jumping overboard in the water, trying desperately to make it to land. Swimming, floating, carrying others. And then Luke concludes their account with these final words. Latter part of verse 44, he says, and so it was that all were brought safely to land. And so it was. A better translation for you would be this, and so it came to pass. In fact, Luke uses that exact phrase in other places to indicate something weighty or notable had happened. What had come to pass? God's promise. What had come to pass was God's promise that not one soul would perish. The promise he made through the angel was to deliver every single person on board from death to life without exception. And it says they were brought safely. That means completely, wholly, out of the storm, off the boat, out of the ocean, and delivered by the hand of God onto dry land just as what? Just as he promised. Just as God had promised The ship and its cargo had been lost. God said that was going to happen, but every soul was saved. My beloved, this was a miracle. This was a miracle. There are several different accounts of similar. um, Josephus was on a ship that lost, I think, three-fourths of the crew in a similar accident in a similar area. So for the fact that every single person made it, even those who could not swim, was a miracle. Every man on board was now sitting safely on dry land, and they had to wrestle with this undeniable fact. They heard what Paul said. Paul gave God the credit through an angel that they would all live. They heard it. And so it was, it was their responsibility now to grapple with this miracle that they had experienced in their darkest hour when they'd given up all hope of being saved from the storm. God sent a message of salvation a message of hope to all on board that because of Paul, they would live, and they did. And they did. My beloved, what, what God did on that ship through Paul, saving 276 souls by pure grace, should point the astute listener to the cross of Christ and the promise God made to all mankind. He promised to thwart the power of Satan, did he not? I mean, you want to talk about enemies that want to thwart the will of God. Satan is number one. He promised to thwart the power of Satan, sin, and death in order to save sinners like us. He promised to save completely all those 
who come to a realization by the power of the Holy Spirit that our lives are shipwrecked apart from Christ. Right? That is the realization that we have sinned against a holy God, that we have rebelled against our Creator, that we have made a shipwreck of our life. And that apart from a Savior, apart from a Savior who was willing to satisfy the righteous decrees of a holy God by entering into our storm, into our sin and death, by boarding our shipwrecked ship, destined for destruction at the judgment seat of God, and then willingly being destroyed himself, shipwrecked in our place, appeasing the righteous wrath of God, calming the storm. so that sinners like you and sinners like me can be saved. God made this promise to man and he kept it through the death and resurrection of Christ. The same promise that God made to all 276 souls on that ship that you will not die, that you will live, God makes to mankind through Christ. But it's not for all mankind, it's for those who repent and believe and do what? Who put their faith and trust in the Savior. Because Christ is your lifeboat. He's the only one that can get you to shore. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was the greatest miracle of all time. Undeniably so. And every man, woman, and child who's ever heard the gospel has to wrestle with this truth. You have to land somewhere with this truth. Just as those men sat on the beaches of Malta thinking, this was, this was God. So too, when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must wrestle with the truth of salvation by grace through faith or judgment and condemnation forever in the lake of fire. My beloved, whatever storm you've gone through in this life, it's nothing like the storms of the lake of fire. Whatever tribulation that you've moved through thinking you cannot make it, it's nothing like an eternity in the tribulation of the lake of fire. My beloved, the waves of God's eternal wrath are crashing on the rocks right before you, I ask you, do you hear them? Do you hear them? Daylight has come. The promised land <clears throat> has been set before you. Do you see it? Do you recognize it? If so, then I exhort you this morning. <clears throat> I want you to cast off the anchors of sin that so easily weigh you down. Cut them off completely. Mortify the sin Loosen the ropes of your rudder that keep you from walking daily the paths of righteousness. Hoist your foil sail, hoist it high into the wind of the Holy Spirit and make your way where? Make your way to the promised land. Make your way for the beach where Christ is. <clears throat> that means committing yourself this morning and every day until you see Jesus face to face to live a life, and this is gonna be shocking, you ready? That's serious about pursuing Jesus. We're not terribly serious in this country about Christ. If you're gonna cut the anchors and, and set your rudder and hoist that sail, it's being serious about pursuing Jesus. That's serious about God, serious about his word, serious about his kingdom and the work that he's given you to do, the very hard work of bringing all that grain up from below the deck in the midst of a storm. You see, our tendency as Christians in the West, when things get really hard, we just pull back, don't we? I mean, things get hard, we pull back. I can't serve God. I can't serve my brothers and sisters. I can't grow the kingdom because things are hard for me right now. That's not what God calls us to. He says, be encouraged, trust in me, work for the kingdom now. Serious about the things of God. There's so little seriousness in our faith today. So little urgency to make it to shore. 
in the midst of this storm for ourselves, for our family and friends, for those lost in our mission field, so little seriousness. My beloved, I want to encourage you, if your ship runs aground and you feel the waves of this world breaking your stern to pieces on your back, tearing you to pieces, remember the promise of your Savior. He said, of all the Father gives me, I will not lose one, but will what? Raise him up on the last day. The promise of Christ, you will not be lost. If you're in Christ, you're fixed in Christ. And just as those 276 souls would not be lost, you cannot be lost in Christ. He will deliver you through. So when you get stuck on that sandbar and your your bow stuck in the mud and you're being beaten to pieces, remember that. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Feed on his goodness. As they ate that bread, feed upon the goodness of Christ. Feed upon his promise. Feed upon his love for you. And then what? Start swimming again. Start swimming again. Instead of remaining stuck in all the despair of life, start swimming again. If you can't swim, grab onto someone who can. And if you can't find someone who can, then get a flotation device. Grab onto a promise or a scripture verse. Something of substance in the kingdom of God and hold on to it with all your might. My beloved God is the ultimate promise keeper. Not a single hair on your beautiful head will be lost if you're in Christ. Not one. Be encouraged and trust in God. The journey may be long and and very difficult at times. At times you may be barely staying afloat. But I want to encourage you to press on. The journey, the company, and the end in Christ, it's all worth it, my beloved. And you know that if you know the Lord. I'm going to close by reading two verses from this great hymn. Listen. We shall hear the angels singing when we reach the golden shore. Loud their anthems will be ringing when we reach the golden shore. Jesus there will rise to meet us. With sweet loving words he will greet us. And beside him he will seat us when we reach the golden shore. We shall cast our crowns before him when we reach the golden shore. And with shining hosts adore him when we reach the golden shore. Every land and every nation, all made free through his salvation, will join in his acclamation when we reach the golden shore. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know there's no hope of reaching that golden shore apart from Christ. Many of us are gathered here this morning and we know that in many ways we have made a shipwreck of our own lives. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us, that you would encourage us and you would cause us to trust in you as the perfect promise keeper. I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters this morning, Father, that in the midst of the storm we would not pull back, that we would not isolate. Instead, we would press further into Christ We would be encouraged by the work that he completed on our behalf. We would enjoy deeply the love that he has for us. And then we'd work even harder for your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that those golden shores would always be before us. And that we would keep our eyes fixed on Christ. And that place we have reserved with him, seated at his right hand. I pray, Lord, you bless my brothers and sisters to take this encouragement. And this great trust we have in Christ and the gospel to the lost in our mission field. We are surrounded by people living in despair. Lord, what great hope we have to offer them. Open our mouths, Lord, that we might testify to this truth. In Christ's name, amen.